0: continue in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, The book Ecclesiastes was explained to me this way by one of my uh, seminary professors. He said, if you take the book of Proverbs, it's another wisdom book in the scriptures. The book of Proverbs is kind of life and ideal, right? Apply these principles to your life and life is going to be good. But then you realize as you live some life, well, sometimes life really stinks. And then you have the book of Job where bad stuff happens and there's suffering, and there's hardship. So what do you do? How do you live life well when you're in the midst of suffering? And then Ecclesiastes is kind of on the other side of that dip in life where it's sort of like you're a seasoned veteran. You've had the highs, you've had the lows, you realize that these ideals and proverbs don't work out exactly the way you want it to, and so how is it that you continue to apply wisdom in your life even though, based on the season, based on your circumstances and all the things we've already started to cover, Uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, how is it that you kind of actually in a seasoned way pursue the good life, pursue the life that God has blessed you with? Today we pick up in chapter 4, chapters 4 to 10. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at these. Chapters 4 to 10 are kind of, you could call them different life paradoxes. So you're trying to make life work, you're trying to strive after something, you're trying to do something, and again, you're just kind of run into these ruts you kind of realize that, hey, this principle applies here, but this other principle applies there, and how do you mesh those things together? And so that's kind of over the next couple of chapters. This week and next, we're going to look at chapter four, four, chapters 4 to 6 and this idea of power and the power paradox. All right. So as I have taken a look at, and I'll be preaching next week too, at chapters 4 to 6, I see at work in the preacher that is the author of Ecclesiastes, That when it is that we move out into the world with our strength, our energy, our power, how is it that we run into ruts? And the different type of ruts that we run into as we're trying to make an impact on our world, we're trying to pursue our dreams, we're trying to attain the good life, and we just kind of get stuck in some ways, or things don't work out the way that we were hoping them to, or this thing that I obtained doesn't satisfy the way that I thought that it would. Well, then where is wisdom there? How is it that I live life well as I apply my energy to the world? So what we're going to do here this morning, I'm not, I don't have any of the scripture up on uh, the screen, not yet. Uh, we will take a look at something a little bit more in detail here in a moment. But what I want to do is just kind of do a quick flyby. So if you have your Bible, you're welcome to open up to Ecclesiastes 4. If you have your Bible on your uh, app or phone or something like that, open it up. And I'm just going to talk through the next two chapters because it's important for context for what we're going to explore this morning and for tomorrow. All right, so we'll start in chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. Right, the preacher says, I saw all the oppressions that were done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So he starts out right away, hey, sometimes you're powerless, and there's powers that rule over you, and this is an evil thing. We'll talk more about oppression next week. But then he moves on, actually, to what seems quite different, uh, but it's along the same lines of power, verses four to six, where he talks about work. He says, I've noticed people working. They go and work, and they toil, and they strive, and what's their motivation? They envy their neighbors. So rather than really wanting to do good, what people are really motivated by is, you've got a new car, and so I'm going to work harder at my work so I can get the same new car that you have. Then he says, well, but some people are lazy. That's not a good thing because then you can't feed yourself. But at the same time, too, you know, uh, verse 6, if you just are striving in, in in pure ambition, that, too, is vanity. It's, hey, it's better to just kind of t- keep your head down and kind of work quietly and get your stuff done. In verse four to, or 7 to 8, he considers even more the motivation of our work. In verse 13, he begins to talk about positional power. So he says, hey, it's better to be poor and wise as a youth than an old foolish king. Because the old foolish king who has all the power and has a position, he says, you know what? At some point in time, some young gun is going to be the new charismatic rise up and coming kind of leader that everyone's going to kind of jump on their boat, start following them. They become the major influencer. Everyone loves them. And then the king all of a sudden gets seated for this new rule of this new king. But the young guy who is now the king, hey, he's got to be careful because there's going to be someone that comes up after him as well. And so he sees positional power rotating that just to obtain a position is futility. It doesn't mean that you're living the good life. If you jump down to verse 8, chapter 5, verse 8, he talks more about the oppression and injustice. In verse 10 of chapter 5, he talks about obtaining money and the love of money and how even those who obtain money, well, they're not quite satisfied as well. He says, some have obtained wealth and money, but then they feel like they have to keep it. I've got the stuff, but they hold on to it too long to their own detriment. Then he moves on to chapter 6. He says, there is an evil that I've seen under the sun. This is verse 1 in chapter 6, under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man, a person to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor. This person has all of it, wealth, possessions, and honor, so that they lack nothing of all that they desire, yet God does not give them give them the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. You won the lottery, and then you have a heart attack the next day. That sucks. <laughs> he says this is evil. That's not the way it should be. And then he kind of closes chapter 6 in verses 7 through 12, asking more uh, questions revolving around the use of power and the pursuit of wisdom. And so it seems like as man and woman try to act upon the world, act upon life, trying to pursue their dreams, trying to make life happen, trying to make a difference, we can run into ruts. What he's saying is that there is futility and frustration in our attempt to create the good life. There is futility and frustration of all different kinds as we attempt to pursue, to create the good life for ourselves. So what do we do? How is it that we avoid exercising our strength, our power, and our energy as we pursue our desires and dreams in this world? How do we do it without it ending in futility? I'm glad you're asking that question because the preacher has something to say to us. Now let's take a look at chapter five, verse one. Right in the middle of these two chapters that we're looking at, the preacher does begin to press in on our perspective. Read with me. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they're doing evil. But be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God, well, He's in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. So, what's the preacher saying? He's saying that when we approach God, the God who's in heaven, we come with lots of dreams. God, I want to make a difference in my life. God, I want my life to matter. God, when I leave this world, I don't ever want it to be the same. I have ambitions. I have hopes. I have dreams. I have strategies. I have methods. I'm going to pursue it all. I'm going to put it all in place, and I am going to make it work. And you know what, God? I'm going to make it work, and it's all going to be for you. A little bit for me, but really for you, right? Right? And what he's saying is that as we approach God, we come with our plans, our pre-baked plans of how we're going to make life matter, how we're going to make it fulfilling, how we are going to fill it with meaning and goodness. We have lots of words for God, but not an ear to listen to the one who made us. Not an ear to listen to the one who has designed it all. And so we're presumptuous. He says, the fool comes before God proclaiming his ways, proclaiming her ways, saying it's going to work like this and work like that. I'm going to do this and go here and do that without listening to God. And this is how we wind up in futility and vanity as we pursue the good life, as we exercise the strength and power that God has given us. So this morning we're going to do for the rest of our time, we're going to take a step back. And we're going to take a look at what God has given us. And hopefully, we can hear from Scripture the strength and energy God has given us and how it is that we apply it when it comes to pursuing our dreams and hopes, as it comes to pursuing the will of God, as it comes to relating to one another. And so we've got to maybe, in some ways, relearn how to exercise the very thing that God has given us, because we've presumed that we know how to do it. Well, so we're going to start from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. So in the scriptures, Genesis chapter 1, you get the sense of this, that God is power, and God dispenses power for human flourishing. This is established in chapter 1. God is power. He's all the omnis, right? Omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. He can do anything that he wants, And he's not dependent on anyone or anything, right? If he's like, hey, in the middle of the sanctuary, a tree's gonna grow up. He doesn't need the sunlight. He doesn't need soil. He can do whatever it is that he pleases. The scriptures tell us that God is so in control that he's in control of every molecule that exists of every moment throughout all of human time. It is under his control. And that we are held together by him. This is how much control that he has. And yet, in his power, he gives it to us that we might flourish, that we might obtain the good life. So in chapter 1, God speaks. He says, hey, you know, sun exists, the sun exists, earth exists, it exists. Birds, they then exist. So he speaks and it happens. And the author of Genesis says this, God said it and it happened. God said it and it happened. And then he gets to verse 27 where he says, hey, now God is going to do something new. All right, we're going to make man and woman in our image. In our image, God makes man and woman. And then in verse 28, it said, after he made man and woman, he said, it says, God blessed them and then said to them, be fruitful and multiply and take dominion of the earth. And so the order matters. Before Adam and Eve are commanded, or human beings are commanded to do anything, to act upon the world, they are blessed. So what does this mean? Blessed does not mean like good vibes. Blessed doesn't mean that you're just like getting all of your pleasures met. It doesn't mean that good fortune has come your way. That's not what blessed means. In the Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament is written in, blessed means to be filled with power or to be filled with strength. It's actually the the verb form of this Hebrew word, which I don't like to necessarily get into the nitty-gritty of of the languages because I I know it can be a bit uh, boring at times for some people, my wife namely. Um, But it, it does matter here. This verb form is actually a causative or resultive form, meaning God acts upon human beings and blesses them, empowers them, gives them strength to then go and fulfill his commands. They can't fulfill his command until he empowers them. So he must empower them first, resulting in their ability to then act upon the world and fulfill his will, to do what he's asked them to do. What does he ask them to do? To be fruitful, multiply, and take dominion, to rule, which is human flourishing. That is what he does. Uh, Archbishop Akakios, who's uh, of the Greek Orthodox tradition, I like the way he he puts... uh, what has happened here in Genesis 1 into words. He says, the human is, as it were, we are an icon of God, a flesh and blood image of the spiritual energy of God, his very breath giving life to the human body and soul. We are a flesh and blood image of God. We are the spiritual energy of God. What is he saying? He's saying that when we exercise our strength, our energy, our power, we are playing God. We're playing God. Now, we are not gods, we're not little g gods, but we're playing God. We're acting like God. That's what we do as image bearers. We're to reflect him as we use his power that he's given to us as we act upon the world. This is profound. Anytime that you do anything, you are playing God. And you're either playing the true God or you're playing some false iteration or image of God. Anytime you do anything. Now, This summer, my son uh, started a business, and here's how his business came about. He came to his mom and I, and he said, I would like an iPhone, will you get me an iPhone? To which we said, no. And, (laughs) but we said, we'll do you one better, which is always dangerous when your parent says, I'll do you one better, because they think they've got a good plan, and as a kid, you're like, this is a dumb plan. We said, what we'll do is we'll help you mow lawns for money, right? And you can earn your way to an iPhone. And so, you know, what we do is my son, Grant, you know, taught him how to mow the lawn, right? He did it, you know, multiple times on my own lawn, taught him how to work the whole lawn, taught him how to do the diagonal lines and the straight lines and all the different things, right? Taught him how to weed eat, all that kind of stuff, all right? Got him set with some, like, business cards because he had a phone number at that time, uh, email address, all that kind of stuff. He can't get anywhere, right, because he can't drive. So we drove him around town trying to find different clients for the summer that he could mow their lawn, right? Right? And so we're setting him up, we're empowering him to then use his own power to start a business, right? And so that's what he does. What is he doing? He's playing adult. He's not an adult, but he's playing an adult. Taking responsibility, communicating, right? Having clients, having work, making money, doing something uh, smart with that money that he gets, right? He's playing adult. And so Ali and I use our power to empower him to then use his own power to then act and play adult. And as he acts and plays adult, he then learns what adulting looks like, and hopefully by the time he's your guys' age, he's adult, right? I pointed to the college students. That's a hope. So God, as we mature, we play God. As we learn God, we act on this world in a godly way. We then therefore more and more begin to look more and more like God and change and act upon our, wor- our, our world as God would to create human flourishing. We can't do this without listening to him. So if we come to him, God, here's what you want. You want me to do this, right? I'm gonna, this seems good to me. I'm going to go and do this. We're presumptuous. We've jumped, we, you know, we've jumped the boat. We've got to understand where we come from. God has empowered us with his spirit to create human flourishing. All right, so now what happens? Our temptation... Our temptation is to act upon the world in what is maybe, uh, I'm taking the words of Andy Crouch, who's a uh, Christian author, speaker, writer. We act upon this world in sort of a make it, so, make it so kind of way, rather than let it be. We'll get to let it be in a second. So we act upon our world either in a let it be kind of way or in a make it so. Make it so, meaning this is what I want, this is my will. And so I use whatever is at my disposal, whatever I have to use in my own power, my intellect, my communication, my physical strength, in order to make my will happen on this earth. It's called coercive power. I coerce the world, all right, into the way that I want it to be. Whether that's in my relationships, at home, at work, my future dreams, I coerce the world, right? And coercion is really, it's just power against resistance. The world resists me, the world resists what I want, but I will act over it, I will conquer it, and then my way will be done, my will will be done. We see this in pro athletes, right? Like a lot of pro athletes, you know, how how did you get to be a superstar of the NFL? Well, I had to prove my haters wrong. I've got haters. I had to prove them wrong. I overcame my haters. I overcame my doubters. And you know what? We applaud and cheer these people, right? Because they overcame. We love the overcoming story. You know, a guy like Bill Gates who starts, like, in his garage, right? From nothing, and he becomes, at the time, you know, at one point in time, in the 90s, like, the richest man in the world. But we love that story. It doesn't matter how he got it. It doesn't matter his character, who he had to lie or steal from or cheat in order to do it. But we love the fact that it happened, right? We love that he overcame, and he fulfilled his dreams. And as a, this is not true of all society or of all times. In the Western world, we have fallen in love with this. We love this, because what uh, Andy Crouch says is that, especially in the context of the American church, we tolerate coercive power because of impact. Because we love results, because we love to make a difference, because we love numbers and figures and all that kind of stuff, because we love this stuff, we tolerate a lot of course of power that is exercised in an ungodly way. Now, there are times that course of power can be used in a godly way, protecting the oppressed, protecting the weak, providing for the needy. There are times that it's appropriate. But by and large, we fall in love with this idea of impact. The new young preacher rises up, We're going to jump our church to go to that church because that guy is more charismatic and more exciting and all that kind of stuff. And then we make him an idol and make him our God and make him our pastor and preacher. And we've seen this. We see it currently happening right now, right? We fall in love with the impact. We fall in love with the numbers. When we think about our donations, what kind of impact am I making? How many people am I feeding? And we just fall in love with that coercive power. And we fund it, and we get behind it because we think that we're making a difference. This is make it so kind of power. But the scriptures, God's power, is to be exercised quite differently in a let it be kind of way. There's a fascinating passage in Matthew chapter 11. It's actually confounded me for a long time. It still kind of does. So John the Baptist is like, at the time, like the greatest preacher, prophet, before Jesus comes on the scene. He's got thousands of people following him. People coming down to hear him preach and to be baptized by him. And at this point in time in Matthew chapter 11, he's in prison and he's about ready to die. And so he sends word to Jesus. He says, hey, I have been preaching for you. And are you the Messiah? Are you the one sent by God? To which Jesus says to John's followers, he says, hey, tell John yes. Like the work of the kingdom is advancing you're good, like you, you, you ran a good race, right? And John did. But to the crowds who have jumped ship from following John to now following Jesus, he's, he preaches to them. He's now preaching to the crowds who are now following him. He says this. He says, truly I say to you, those who are now following me, among, the born of, among those born of women, there has, not, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is the greatest who have ever been born of any woman at this time. This come from Jesus' mouth, so it's got to be true, right? Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. So what John is saying, or sorry, what Jesus is saying, is that John is the greatest. If you want to be greater than John? You must become the least of him. And this is kingdom power. But those who think that they can either advance on God's kingdom or advance God's kingdom through force, through coercion, are deceived. People think that they can overcome God's kingdom through violence, through coercive force. And Jesus says that's not kingdom power, that's not the kingdom way. The kingdom way is to get low, the kingdom way is to get to the bottom. That's how you become great in the kingdom of God. That's how you obtain kingdom power. So godly power is this. Godly power is only through getting low. Yes, dare I say, submission. Kingdom power is through the act of submission. We submit to God. We submit to his power. We submit to his rule. And we look to that. Submission is, I would define it this way, submission is a creative response to the will of another. Submission is a creative response to the will of another. Now I use creative response because submission isn't the way that we as Americans imagine it to be. Again, thinking make it so, submission sounds like you just do what you're told. But that's not what it is. In scripture it's let it be. God comes to the Virgin Mary We're familiar with the story, right? The Virgin Mary who gave birth to Jesus. We're familiar with the story. God comes to Mary and says, you are going to bear the Son of God. You're going to bear the Anointed One, the Messiah. And while this is incredible news, to her in an earthly sense, she will become the object of ridicule, scorn, tabloids for the rest of her life. It's a terrible thing in her life. She's newly engaged. All of her dreams are shattered with this news everything that she'd hoped for, everything that she was planning, God comes and says, you are going to be, uh, you are going to carry the Savior, Jesus Christ. And she says, you can read in Luke chapter one, she says, let it be to me. That's what she says. Let it be to me as you say. As you say, Lord, let that happen in my life. Does she exercise energy, power? It's not just, I told you so. She does a work of carrying, raising, and rearing Jesus as a mother does. But what she does is she creatively responds to God by saying, let what you say happen in my life because I trust that that's a good life. I trust that you're going to create human flourishing by your will being acted in my life and through my life. And this is very different than human power in the way that we exercise it. Let it be to me. So as we interact with one another, as we interact here in the context of the church, as we interact with different leadership structures in our world, we are to have this posture of submission to those who are in authority, that we have a creative response to someone else's will. All right, so let me give you an example of how this actually really makes sense. So I, um, uh, I get asked every now and then to move stuff. So I think people look at my physique and they're like, you probably look like you can move like boxes and furniture and stuff and so yes I can and so people ask me hey we're moving from A to B would you come over and be part of our moving crew I would love to be part of your moving crew I just have 2 I have two requests two requirements if you want my help number one feed me either donuts or pizza that's just give me donuts or pizza that's all I ask in payment and return and number two don't make me think okay I am there as a mule to move stuff So if I get to your house and you hand me an empty box and say, hey, would you organize this utility drawer in this box, I hate you. Because I am not here to think. I don't want to organize your stuff, I don't want to have to think about, if I'm holding something and I walk into your foyer of your new home and you're like, hmm, where should this go? What do you think? Do you think it should go in the basement or like in the living room? How about right here in the foyer is great. I don't care. Tell me where to go, tell me what to do. And this makes sense, right? It's your house, it's your stuff, it's your new home, it's your stuff, right? I don't want to have to think. I want to submit to your will. You tell me what to do and I'll do it, right? And it doesn't work if it's the other way. If I come in and you're like, hey, put that in the living room, I'm like, I really think that this is like a, would be a, a great piece in your garage. You're like, I don't want your opinion. You're here to be a mule. It doesn't work that way, right? Right? Now, that is obviously funny, and it makes a lot of sense. But the fact is that God does create leadership. He endows leaders with the ability to, in the command, all right, to lead those that God has given them to lead, to shepherd. We see this in all over the scriptures. Here in the church is the elders. The elders lead our church. All right, we are to, in, in a sense, submit to their will. And our hope is that our leaders, our elders, are submitted to God's will. They're saying to God, let it be to us as you would will it. What do you want us to do, Lord? And the elders hear from the Lord, and they together then come to the church and say, this is where we're going. And as a church, we say, well, you're submitted to God, and yes, we submit to you. And then we creatively respond to that leadership. This is how it's supposed to go. Now, if the elders are bent on their own agenda in a make-it-so kind of fashion, then it's ungodly leadership. We'll talk about that next week. But godly leadership, they let it be to me, to us, Lord, as you will, and we in the church then say, well, let it be to us, elders, and we will submit to that. And if we look at the home. You know, the scriptures speak that there's a hierarchy in the home. There's a husband who's over the wife and the parents who are over the children. And it's chaotic when it flips, right? If you, you can walk into a home where the kids are in charge and the parents are not, and it is pure chaos. <laughs> because kids are to be submitted to their parents' will, and their parents are to be submitted to the Lord. Lord, help us raise these heathens. Help us make them adults. They're abs- you know, ab- absurd. Help us, God. What's your will? And we creatively respond to that and then we parent them, right? And yes, the scriptures speak of husbands are the head of the household. This is a different term for a different time. But husbands, you are to lead. And it's chaotic when you don't. We see the chaos. I was raised in a single, home, a single parent home, raised by my mom. It was chaos. We needed a husband. We didn't have one. We, my dad wasn't around. It was chaos. And God was faithful and God was good, but that's not God's design, Husbands, you are to lead your families. You are to care and shepherd for them. And so I think what's really important is that we understand when we are in a position of leadership, we use our power and our energy to serve, to serve those that are under our care. And those that are under power and authority, we are to respond through submission to their leadership. Ephesians chapter 2, you can read this on your own, don't have time to really go into it, but Ephesians chapter 2, right before Paul gets into talking about Jesus submitting himself to the will of the Father and laying aside his rights, and then God exalting him to the highest place because of Jesus' submission. He submitted, why? For human flourishing, for human salvation. That's what Paul says. He says this right before He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God. That's something we grasped, sorry. Verse four, before that, he said, let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. So we have this mind of Christ of looking to the interests of others as an, as an example, as a model of what Jesus did to us. So if I'm the head of my home as a husband, I'm to look to the interest of my wife and my kids. I'm to look to their interest and serve them. And if I'm submitted to leadership, I'm to look to the interests of those that are leading me. What is their interest? And how can I respond creatively with my energy and my power that we might see human flourishing? When we talk about human flourishing in scriptures, not just my good in this moment, it's generational flourishing. From me to my kids to my grandkids. And so this is how it's supposed to work. And so as we exercise life, here's a big idea. The good life is being filled with power to create flourishing. You want the good life? Acknowledge, accept that God has empowered you. Accept the fact that he's put you in a position of responsibility to act with the energy that he's given you and then act in such a way as you do his will in your life, not your own. That we all would pray, Lord God, let it be to me as you will. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, um, as we think about our week, I mean, this is Sunday, the first day of the week, and we look out to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And we look at all of our endeavors and all of our dreams, all the things we hope to accomplish and that we hope will happen in our life. God, would we not, would we not forget that our ear would be bent to you moment to moment, that we would receive our marching orders from you that we would steward the energy and the strength that you've filled us with to accomplish your will. Because your will is for human flourishing. It always has been and always will be. And God, in all honesty, so much of our own will is bent to ourselves, to our own flourishing, what we perceive it to be, to obtaining our own wealth, our own possessions, and our own good life but that's not what you've made us for and that's not what you've called us to. So God, would we in humility submit our weak? God, would we submit our actions? Would we set, submit our roles and responsibilities? That we might look to you. That we might say from the depths of our heart, God, let it be to me as you will. And then would we look to the interests of those that we lead and those that we follow? That we might trust you to give us a good life Hi again just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org/ connect. If you're ready to be known we'd love to know you and we hope you'll join us soon for our live Sunday service at 9:30, 30 11 a.m or 11 a.m online Thanks for listening.